Get Lit. Welcome back to Get Lit, the literary podcast where we discuss famous works of literature and the authors who wrote them. I'm your host, Steph Spars, joined here by my co-host, John Stricker. And we're back again with another exciting uh, and wild author who I thought I knew uh, at least a little bit about until I started getting into research about her life and found out that there was so much more. So I'm very excited to discuss Sophie Treadwell, um, who was a journalist, very famous playwright uh, for one specific play called Machinal, um, and who I think is often compared to Susan Glassbell, who was also a playwright and journalist working at literally the same time. Um, but these women were incredibly different. So I'm excited to get into the nuances uh, of Sophie Treadwell this week. I'm excited to learn more. And I think it's been a while since we did a, a playwright, Stephanie. So I'm excited to get us back on the stage. Awesome. Well, uh, before we have our lights up moment, John, what uh, literary news do you have for us? I have a very exciting piece from the New York Times Style Magazine, and it's called Building a New Canon of Black Literature. The subtitle is What Older Novels, Plays, and Poems by African... The subtitle is What Older Novels, Plays, and Poems by African American Writers are Being or Should Be Rediscovered. Great. So, <laughs> I thought so too. It's. I feel like this piece is a parting goodbye to Black History Month. Uh, and it's written by a professor and an author of multiple books on music and culture uh, at UCLA. And he discusses how he found out about J. California Cooper, who is a Black female writer who he had never heard about, even though he had taught survey courses on black female writers and he found out about her through social media and so it spurred him to try and create a modern black canon so that more authors could be discovered uh, in a sense or rediscovered uh, and shared in the similar way that a traditional canon has been shared among academics so he goes to a couple lengths to maybe make five different sort of buckets of authors that he think could be included in the different portions of the canon. And I thought that I would just uh, skip to the titles, Stephanie, and, and get your reaction. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I'd love to hear him. So the first one is called Bad Books. Uh, and he defines this as uh, writers that maybe didn't portray the black culture in a way that was acceptable to intellectuals such as W.E.B. Du Bois huh. or uh, maybe uh, Booker T. Washington at the time, but that still maybe deserve to be read today. So I thought that was an interesting way to put all of them in the category of bad books. Yeah, that's, I think, really interesting, um, especially because I think about how many uh, books that we read today might fall into what that category is in the current canon or the canon that currently stands. Um, so that would, would be interested to sort of see what challenge those ideas. Um, and maybe they offer us another opportunity to be um, critical of them uh, in a way that enhances our thought about how they have impacted our culture since. Yeah, great point. And I think it's interesting to both criticize the work and then criticize the criticism of the work. So, I mean, we're working on a whole lot of levels there. <laughs> yes. The second category is experimentalists, which 
I actually think is sort of a self-explanatory title, but uh, that'd be an interesting bucket to read. The next one is Pioneers. Um, he mentions Butler, uh, who we have an episode on, among others. And then the next one is Fan Favorites. Uh, and then last but not least, uh, the fifth bucket is Victims of the Jane Austen Effect. So, Stephanie, I was not familiar with what the Jane Austen Effect is, but uh, it's based on a book that was written in 2017 called The Making of Jane Austen. Um, and it's the idea that a successful writer prompts other writers to follow a certain formulation and almost imitate the style. Oh. So uh, it's saying what maybe imitators of other famous black writers also deserve study all on their own. Got it. That's an interesting thought. I didn't know that the Jane Austen effect. I sort of just like think about art movements and history and how like one person had to start doing something. And if other people thought it was worth copying, then they also did it too. Um, right. Like our impressionists, that was a school of thought for painting. So although I suppose that Jane Austen's novels weren't like codified, honestly, at the time as like being part of a movement that they would inspire other authors to write in formulas similar to hers. So you know what, good for her for starting a movement that wasn't recognized. And I, maybe it's okay that other authors do that too. <laughs> I think so. And that's why they deserved a bucket of their own, at least in the author of this article's formulation of different portions of a hypothetical black camp. Stephanie, I sort of saw this article as a love note to the end of Black History Month and the progress that we are making in recognizing the literary achievements of cultures and people who have been historically overlooked. And Listener, if you're interested in developing your own understanding of a black canon, I suggest you check out the article. Again, the title, Building a New Canon of Black Literature, in the New York Times Style Magazine. You can find it online. Awesome. Well, thank you, John. I always appreciate an opportunity to expand the canon, expand what we understand, what should be considered there, if we should even have one at all. Um, and of course, great to include more voices um, and more opportunities to learn uh, what should not just be considered a subsect of history, but rather a grand part of it. So thank you so much for bringing us that article. Um, and John and I, of course, hinted at this last week, we do have some news, I guess, of our own, an update. Um, we are quickly approaching our fifth year of uh, Get Lit, and we are going to be having a live episode uh, on April 2nd. So we wanted to put that date out for you guys. Um, it'll be in the later afternoon, uh, 3 to 5 p.m. or so, uh, and we're going to get out concrete details to all of you this week. Um, so feel free to check social media. We'll be plugging and talking about it, but at least save the date for Sunday, April 2nd. We hope to see you there uh, as we celebrate five years. I can't believe we're already there, Stephanie, and I am looking forward to seeing you all again in person. So please stop on by. We look forward to it. <laughs> True. We, we uh, I guess, had a couple live episodes during COVID and, and haven't really approached a live event since. So we're really looking forward to it uh, and, and going from there. So uh, without further ado, though, let's go ahead and check out Sophie Treadwell. Um, she is our focus this week because there's a there's a whole lot of lore and stories behind this author that I think uh, will definitely be worth talking about. So here we go. 
Sophie Anita Treadwell was born on October 3rd, 1885 in Stockton, California. Um, she was not on famousbirthdays.com, which I was actually kind of surprised about, but uh, so made my own profile for her. Of course, a Libra. We've done quite a few Libra authors lately. So like, you know, good on them. Um, they might be taking over, what is it, Pisces, yeah. I think? Pisces has been our biggest author category. Been. So maybe we're going to have to revisit the data for our fifth uh, anniversary. But um, she was born on October 3rd. And other famous people born on October 3rd include Noah Schnapp, who is from uh, Stranger Things. He's an actor. Um, ASAP Rocky, who's a rapper, um, and Tessa Thompson, who's an actress. And I picked her profile specifically because she was in the film version of Passing, um, the Nella Larson novel that got turned into um, a film, uh, the black and white film that I watched. I think, I guess it must have been last year already, but um, very good. So I thought it was kind of cool that she yeah, was there. Yeah, that's like a really cool Six Degrees from Kevin Bacon kind of thing. Right. Six Degrees. Uh, I guess it's not count. I mean, well, it just seemed relevant. So that's fine. <laughs> okay. Other people born uh, in 1885 then uh, include Ezra Pound, uh, Hugo Boss, who's a designer, um, Niles Bohr, the Adam mm-hmm. guy. Yeah. I did not look any further into him because I figured you would have context to provide, but he did something with the atoms in physics. Yeah, well, you're 100% right. He did research into the atom. Wow. How fun. Um, D.H. Lawrence, the poet, and George S. Patton, the general from the military. (laughs) Not a president. That's correct, Stephanie. Good job. Can confirm. Okay. So, anywho, um, her parents are Alfred and Nettie Treadwell. Um, Alfred is uh, his mom, or I guess his his maternal side, uh, has lineage in Mexico. So, he was actually raised in Mexico. Um, he's English and Mexican, according to sources. And uh, her mother was Scottish. So she grows up in kind of this cross-cultural household. And Mexico will play um, a significant factor um, or element, be a significant part of her life um, in a couple different ways. And she will eventually do work in Mexico, too. Um, But unfortunately, the relationship between her parents ends uh, pretty early. Because when Sophie is a toddler, um, her father leaves the family um, and he returns to Mexico. Uh, so that's kind of an early break. Wow. And yeah, this has obvious implications on Sophie's kind of understanding, but she has this sort of odd relationship with her parents. Um, she would watch her mother, who was obviously uh, devastated by this abandonment, um, And, you know, that has an impact on how she sees marriage and the role of marriage in her future life. Um, But she seems to have a good relationship with her father. She does go down to visit him at different times. um, And he kind of encourages her passions and interests throughout the course of her childhood. So although it didn't seem to work out for her mom, it seemed like she had a good relationship with her father, uh, except for not financial, because her father refused to contribute to any of her college funds or kind of help raising her, which for a single mother at the time was exceptionally difficult to do. Yeah, it seems like paying lip service to some of that support that he's giving for her dreams if he's not willing to support her financially towards them, but maybe she didn't see it that way. Right. So regardless, kind of an odd way to start things off, but 
Um, Sophie enrolls in uh, University of California at Berkeley, um, and she has to pay her way through the school because of the lack of financial help from her father. So on top of having a job, um, she's involved in lots of different extracurricular activities. She also writes plays. She was on the track team, which I thought was kind of cool. And she writes one acts and then acts on campus as well as in local community theaters in Oakland. Um, so clearly, uh, very involved and very passionate about the things that she wants to do, uh, while she's yeah, at school. Yeah, very active college, uh, student, it sounds like. Right. Uh, unfortunately, maybe a little bit too active because by the end of her time at college, she actually winds up getting hospitalized for a nervous breakdown. So although she does graduate with her class, she has to graduate in abstentia, meaning she's not actually there to attend her ceremony. Um, in 1906, she graduates with her Bachelor of Letters, kind of a humanities-oriented degree, um, and her focus was French. Wow. I give her a lot of credit for still graduating, even with the uh, the breakdowns. So uh, maybe she'd finished all of her requirements, but if not, like, I mean, it takes something to keep yourself on track. Right. So she did that, uh, unfortunately, at the expense of her yeah. health. Um But uh, after she graduates uh, and kind of has her recovery, she serves as a teacher in a one-room school, uh, which I thought was sort of interesting. But that doesn't exactly excite her. And so she returns to San Francisco and she works as a reporter uh, for the San Francisco Bulletin and uh, eventually becomes very well known for her writing. Obviously, she will continue to do that for the rest of her life. But um, she gets her own feature in that. Um, She has her own byline. So people know her for her work as Sophie Treadwell. Considering that a lot of people use pseudonyms, maybe in fiction more than nonfiction or newspaper work, I think that is something about, well, it says something about her bravery. Yes, I think so. Um, she will use different pseudonyms throughout the course of her life as well. Um, but definitely, I think bravery, um, maybe like chutzpah or like courage is definitely something she has in spades. <laughs> um, let me, <laughs> she gets known for doing these kind of like, undercover reporting pieces where she sort of like goes into a circumstance in, in costume effectively. So incorporating her like theater experience a little bit. Um, One of the ones that she became known for that kept popping up as I was doing research was um, she goes in to a church, different established churches as a sex worker. And she like tries to get them to give her money And what she winds up doing or what she's trying to do is expose the churches for not actually supporting the people in need. So she writes that churches give, quote, only a stone, end quote, um, to women who would have asked for bread, which I thought was sort of interesting. Wow. That... (laughs) I'm just trying to picture the scene, right? Like, so she's in this costume. She's going up to the front doors of the church and she's just like talking to the to the keepers of the church just asking for money like all while keeping a recorder I mean, on her what 
<laughs> well, we're a little bit before okay. recorders, so it sounds more like she just showed up in costume, kind of acting the part and and seeing what how they would respond. So it it seemed like a lot of that was bent towards injustice, yeah. um, which is a lot of what her work will do, um, specifically focusing on uh, the plight of women throughout the course of her life. So I thought that was sort of an interesting. Uh, What's this research for Undercover Boss? Yeah, she actually, Undercover Boss is what she gets credited on. Like, if you watch that show, she pops up as the inspiration for it in the credits, probably. that's so cool. (laughs) (laughs) That's not true. Um, So, in 1907, she winds up moving to L.A. to perform in vaudeville shows. Uh, So, she doesn't let the theater thing leave her completely. Um, But that also doesn't work out. She returns to continue writing. um, And she eventually meets a man named William McGeehan. And uh, they get married in 1910. He is also a journalist, a well-known sports journalist for the San Francisco Bulletin, um, and will eventually get a job that leads him to New York. And so she follows him out to the East Coast. She is moving all over the place. Yeah, that'll be a reoccurring theme. So, you know, keep that one on the table, too. Um, Unfortunately, after the marriage uh, and kind of while they're figuring out where they want to live or want to stay, she suffers another like nervous breakdown. And um, McGeehan, of course, as her husband now has to make the calls about whether she should be hospitalized or not, Um, which is something that he then found very stressful, but like it's sickness and in health, dude. So I I don't feel too bad for him. I'm getting some Sarah Perkins Gilman kind of like, uh, rustlings in the back of my mind where the husband abused those powers, but it sounds like he's not of that vein. <laughs> no, it does not seem like it. Um, their marriage won't really last particularly long in the sense that they live together. In fact, when they go off to New York, they sort of split and separate, but it doesn't really seem like it's out of like a, a bad blood situation. They definitely at least remain friends until his death. He'll die uh, in 1933. But I thought that was sort of interesting that they had their own kind of understanding of what marriage meant to them. Of course, that was revolutionary at the time. Uh, but they sort of like did their own thing while also still being married. Interesting. Yeah, some of the authors, I'd definitely like to sit down with them and their significant other and just ask like, so Why? Why why did you get married? <laughs> right. What did you need here? So I'm not sure, but it, it worked out at least, I guess, for them in, in some way, Good. shape, or form. Uh so she moves out and um one of the one of the articles that I was reading said that she was going to be associated with the Provincetown players uh for the rest of her life, which I don't know that I would call her an associate. Of. I feel like she ran alongside the Provincetown players, but not necessarily in them. Um, she she did some work and she was friends with um, Robert Edmund Jones, who's going to come up later, who was like this insane, talented uh artist in the theater he did he revolutionized kind of technical theater in america and did all of eugene o'neill's plays so he he was deep in the provincetown players so she worked like with people who worked with the provincetown players but um was was pretty reticent to join what we know as the little theater movement um in america and i'll talk about that shortly um but she also joins the lucy stone league that's a group of suffragettes and so you can see that this advocacy for women is still an incredibly important part of what she's choosing to do with her time uh, across the United States, too. 
back to that chutzpah and, and bravery and courage, Stephanie. Exactly. Um, so let's get into that, actually. Um, during World War One, Treadwell uh, is the only foreign female correspondent who writes from overseas per the State Department, evidently. She travels. Um, she's not allowed by the French government on the front lines like some other male reporters were. Um, but she stays there and does her reporting from, you know, in and around it as much as she could. She volunteers as a nurse um, and focuses all of her writing about how the war is impacting women at the time in Europe, which again is remarkable. Um, she runs a feature in Harper's Weekly called Women in Black in 1950. Um, meant to kind of put a spotlight on what the the people, specifically what women at the time were experiencing uh, while she's over there. Uh, Stephanie, you know, we've profiled someone else close to the Provincetown players. That was a war correspondent. So I think Mary Heaton Vorse is right in this same sort of sphere as uh, Treadwell. So. Right? Yeah, like, again, alongside, although Mary Heaton Vorse was directly involved with the players, but... Um, she will continue her journalistic explorations um, in power. In 1921, she uses her connections to Mexico because of her father um, to secure the only American interview that we have with Pancho Villa in Durango, Mexico, uh, which I thought was pretty interesting. Uh, she uh, uh, Villa, of course, was part, he's, I guess, kind of perceived as a Robin Hood-like figure. Some people uh, really appreciate the things that he did to cause revolution and other people don't. Um, but regardless, he was an incredibly polarizing figure that she was able to interview because of her uh, experience and her journalistic prowess, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's a testament if you get an exclusive. Right? And she will actually use this inspiration uh, to produce a play called Gringo in 1922. It's actually the first professional Broadway production that she puts forth. Um, there will be more, but this kind of gets her uh, a dip into professional theater. So maybe that's a good place to go into the theater world. Um, she does a lot of work on theater over the next decade or so. Um she writes a script called Plumes in the Dust, which is actually a story about Edgar Allan Poe, uh, which I thought was pretty cool. That I haven't is. heard of the play, but any author writing about an author is something that I want to know more about. So I'll definitely be looking into that one. Um, and she shows it to her good friend, John Barrymore, um, who was an incredibly famous actor at the time. Uh, I believe great grandfather of Drew Barrymore. Yep. And um, he supposedly uh, read the script and never gave it back to her. <laughs> and then several years later, he wants to put on a play about Edgar Allan Poe written by his wife. Um, and Sophie Treadwell gets wind of this, discovers that it's actually her play, um, or at least heavily pulled from her play. And um, she sues him. And she wins. Good for her. Yeah, so I thought that that was pretty remarkable. Unfortunately, this does not make her very popular because John Barrymore is very famous and very popular, and she is not. So this kind of rubs the public and a lot of Broadway professionals the wrong way to see a woman standing up for her copyright, uh, I guess, rights and entitlement in that. But he was just so, so blatant. Like, how do you even make a case for that? I obviously it didn't work because he didn't win, but I thought that that was kind of interesting. So eventually that show will get produced, but not until 1936. Mm. Um, and it will star Henry Hull and not John Barrymore. Wow. 
he was going to make it a vehicle for himself too. I think that was kind of the thing of it though. I think she also had initially wanted that, which is why she showed him the script in the first place. But then when it didn't seem like the project was working, he just neglected to give her the script back. So Mm, that's so dirty. Yeah. Um, So in order to make things work out uh, from a theater perspective, she tries a few other things. Um, In 1925, she acts in and produces a comedy called Oh Nightingale on Broadway. And this is the closest thing that lots of critics say might be slightly autobiographical in the play sense. She writes other novels that will be, but this is the only play that seems to pull directly from her life and experiences. Um, And then a few years later, she attends as a journalist the murder trial of Ruth Snyder and Judd Gray. Um, So again, another journalist right around this time who writes about murder and makes a play out of it. I'm thinking of Susan Glassbell here, but um, this is different. The Ruth Snyder murder trial is wild. Uh, If any of you are true crime fans, that would be definitely one to look up. But Ruth Snyder was the first woman um, in, I guess, almost like... 30 years to be put to death in the state of New York via electric chair. Um, The premise of her case is that she uh, was a young woman who married an older man. Uh, There's all kinds of conflicting information about the nature of that relationship, but ultimately she winds up having an affair with a younger man. They plot to kill her husband, which does happen. She's found guilty and then uh, put to death. Like I said, um, And the basis of that becomes uh, stuff that Treadwell uses to report on from a journalistic perspective. But she also writes a play that she is most famous for writing called Machinal, which is based on this case. Although initially there's denials that it's based on anything. But I mean, it's pretty clear. (laughs) Right. I'm getting flashbacks to In Cold Blood with Harper Lee and Truman Capote, too. Yeah. So... uh, it's interesting what sort of dredges up the creative juices and turns into either a famous novel or a famous play. Right. Yeah. That's a great, a good connection too. I think their writers have definitely an interesting relationship between the stories that they report on and apparently the stories that they tell too. So um, Mock and All follows a very similar plot. Um, again, a young woman. Uh, in this case, in the sense of the play, she's sort of forced to marry her boss. She lives with her mother and has to do all of these things that women were expected to do at the time. Uh, so again, kind of demonstrates Treadwell's resistance to the normal or conventional path for a woman at the time. Uh, she winds up getting married to this boss. She has an affair with a younger man. She works at, you know, uh, this, she's like a clerk, basically. Um, at a factory and uh, she kills her husband is convicted and then put to death. The final scene is, is pretty intense. It actually reminds me a lot of the crucible um, for those who are Arthur Miller fans, but there's uh, you know, a trial and uh, it ends with a prayer and it ends in a death and uh, whether or not that death is justified is kind of up to the audience to think about. So, and we're sure this is based on the things she reported on. Yeah, I know it's not totally clear, but you might be able to draw a couple parallels. So, yeah. Machinal's uh, premiere on Broadway in 1928 is actually the first starring role for a little-known actor from the time named Clark Gable. You might have no heard of way. him. No way. Yeah, isn't that cool? Clark Gable? Yeah, Clark Gable's first professional Broadway like role is the other man. He's the the younger man in the story. Wow. Yeah, so... 
Robert Edmund Jones does the design. Uh, and like I said, he is hugely influential in creating kind of the modern movement in theater in America. And um, he works a lot with different playwrights and, and artists all across Broadway for decades. Um, the play also kind of immediately gets uh, stagings in England uh, and across Europe, which I also think is kind of interesting. She is the first American playwright to be paid royalties in the USSR. So that was kind of a cool, I don't know. Yeah, fact. what an interesting distinction. Yeah. So critically, the piece is incredibly successful. Um, it winds up being categorized as like a, an expressionist drama. So usually when people study, you know, expressionism in America, this play comes up as one of the kind of foremost examples of it. Speaking of canons, right? Literally, yes. Um, it, it falls into a lot of those canonical work categories as female playwrights, expressionism, modern theater, the little theater movie, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and it is described in a New York Times editorial as, quote, so detached, impersonal, and abstract that it seems timeless. In a hundred years, it should still be vital and vivid, end quote. Uh, so unfortunately for us, that that I see as being still accurate. Um, I worked on an adapted production of Machinal, um, I guess, uh, nine years ago at this point, uh, which sort of hurts to say out loud. But um, <laughs> it, it definitely paints a, a very sympathetic portrayal toward women who are kind of forced by society to do all sorts of things that we don't want. So in the end, although she definitely commits murder, um, it almost feels like a warranted moment, and she's sort of being martyred uh, in a way. I would say that I would argue that that is the way that we're supposed to perceive the character throughout the play itself. It sounds like it's almost a dare to see how far you're willing to cheer on the character, right? In a way, um, you know, and it does have some incredibly poignant and uh intense look at uh, the, the rights that women have in, in our society, which of course are now very recently being called into question even more frequently than maybe we thought. So who knows in five years when the play celebrates a hundred years, uh, where we're going to be. Wow. A hundred years. Yeah. It is the most significant success she will see on Broadway. Unfortunately, it runs um, for a, about two months, 90 something performances, um, and does well and is, you know, continues to get revamped and, and put on today. Um, but one of the reasons that critics believe she had this limited amount of success on Broadway is because of her refusal to participate in the Little Theater movement. Um, the Little Theater movement is one of the ones that Provincetown players were really uh, responsible, in my opinion, for for spurring. Um, and it's this idea that we have these like small storefront theaters that are creating and producing really interesting work, um, but they're not waiting for critical approval or money to do so. So lots of these productions are very low budget. Lots of these productions are done in very small spaces um, with incredibly talented artists, but not a lot of resources at their disposal. Um, and that is what Chicago theater, I would argue, is known for, um, is the, the kind of continuation of this tradition of American theater. So um, if anyone is interested in learning more about that, let me know. And I'm happy to talk to any of you about it all day. Um, but so where Susan Glassbell was very supportive 
of that little theater movement. Um, it kind of became her work. Treadwell doesn't believe that that's the way to go. She wants big Broadway support for all of her shows. And she is unwilling to see the little theater movement as kind of a credible place to put her work up. And as a result of waiting and chasing and writing and rewriting for all these Broadway venues, um, she doesn't necessarily get the success that she's hoping for. I wonder if she didn't feel that as a female playwright, that it may be seen as settling or beneath her to do that kind of work. And then I also wonder about the economic implications of this, because at least today, it's unaffordable for most people to see Broadway shows with any type of regularity. But some of these little theater productions, they're they're approaching affordability. So, um, yeah, I'm very, I'm very conflicted about this, this stance that she's taken. Yeah, I was too. And this was, this was kind of where things like started to go downhill for me, where I thought like, I knew Sophie Treadwell and I started doing research and things just kept getting weirder. And I was like, oh, this is one of those moments that I don't know that I entirely agree with, but, um, we can push further into the controversy there as well. Uh, So as I mentioned, her husband dies in 1933, um, and she's continuing to write and work around uh, New York City. um, And she writes a novel called Hope for a Harvest. And this one is autobiographical. Um, She had taken a trip to Egypt in the Far East in 1936, so just a few years after he died. Um, And then she writes this play, which premieres on Broadway in 1941. Unfortunately, uh, this timing couldn't have been worse. It's a play that explores themes of xenophobia throughout the course of the United States and advocates for immigration. And then, of course, uh, Pearl Harbor gets bombed, as we know, historically speaking. And it earns good reviews, but it's the timing couldn't be worse uh, in a very xenophobic America uh, during that time. It closes after a run of only 10 days uh, because after Pearl Harbor theater, you know, like theater just goes out the window. People are not wanting to see theater uh, at all. And um, like I said, closes after 10 days. What incredibly bad luck and what a timely message that America really needed to hear. Right. So I kind of, you know, had it been running longer what what could that conversation or you know could that conversation have been more dynamic? I'm not sure, but uh, regardless, that's kind of her last uh, her last straw with Broadway, and she turns elsewhere to try to find success. Alrighty, so let's continue. Um, it's 1942, and she heads off for about 10 months to go to Mexico City. Um, and she's a correspondent there. She goes back to her journalism. Um, and she's working for the New York Herald Tribune. Um, she'll also spend some time in the 1940s after the end of the war um, around Europe, uh, again, doing more correspondence work. Um, and in 1949, she adopts a baby from Germany. She names him William, and she's 65 years old when this happens. Oh my gosh! Um, it yeah, this was among the stranger facts that I read, especially because when I was looking into circumstances around her death, I didn't find much of anything, much of anything from him because they apparently didn't have a great relationship. So I don't know how I feel about this sort of like factor element of her life, but this is another kind of strange thing that appeared. What a strange choice. 
Right. So um, the next couple years, she spends uh, running around Europe, Mexico, Connecticut, California. Um, she starts focusing her work around novels. Um, but she's also recovering from a series of like illnesses and sicknesses. So she spends most of her time between 1956 uh, to 1965 in Torre Molinos in Spain. And um, she publishes a novel in 1959 called One Fierce Hour and Sweet. Um, and then in 1960, Machinal gets revived off-Broadway at the Gate Theater. So she's still kind of working in and around that, but I think ultimately decides that novels were going to be her focus. Um, the new play that she writes that gets produced is Now He Doesn't Want to Play, which is set in Mexico. So you can see again that this cultural current still has a huge impact on her work. Um, and she's around 80 years old at this time, and she's still working with the University of Arizona, which is doing that production, um, working with the director, she's doing rewrites during the rehearsal process um, to try to get it to go to Broadway. It never will, however. Oh, I mean, it's it's that's where she's putting her eggs is in that basket is the two Broadway basket, right? Um, unfortunately, uh, the basket never makes it. Um, so the eggs are she, broken. <laughs> the eggs. The eggs have broke, um, and she's still kind of in Arizona, which I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, and so despite sort of being actively engaged in all of these things, um, it doesn't really seem to pan out. Uh, she does continue writing and rewriting, which a lot of critics say is much to her detriment. The rewrites don't necessarily make her work better or stronger. So I was a little reticent to say that because I feel like we always tell students to write and rewrite their work, which is still very important. Um, but, you know, to an extent, it, it never seemed like she was really satisfied with any of the things that she did, um, but wasn't really able to move on or move forward from them. To kind of wrap things up, Sophie Treadwell dies at the age of 85 on February 20th, 1970. Um, I was trying to figure out where she was buried. There was no record on find a grave or anything like that until I came across a small article that said um, that she donated her body to the University of Arizona um, for science, which I think might be a first for a Git Lit author. Um, I, we've had some unconventional deaths or burials in... Um, you know, I think like Julia Child or like Hunter S. Thompson, but regardless, um, I thought that was kind of an interesting, uh, interesting way to go. Yeah. Anywho, so she donates her estate to the education of American Indian children. Um, she was involved and engaged in those communities kind of throughout the course of her life, too. Um, and over the course of her life, she's credited with writing at least 39 plays, different serials and journalistic articles, short stories and several novels. Um, one of the, well, I came across this quote a few times and I wanted to read it, but also with a grain of salt, because I don't necessarily know that it's a very good thing, but it seems to definitely like embody who she was as a person. Um, so one of her famous quotes toward the end of her life was as follows, quote, work is the greatest thing on earth, greater than love, greater than death. Work is the product of time and energy and time is the brother of death. Death is the reward for having lived. End quote. It's so quite an exalted status <laughs> for work. 
I know. Um, I I mean, obviously, she worked really hard throughout the course of her entire life. So maybe she kind of like had to say that to, to make it worth it. I don't know. We could definitely unpack that. Um, death is the reward for having lived, maybe is the... If we had a positive spin on it, like, you know, a life well lived is a motivator, I'm not quite sure. I thought this was an interesting quote, which is why I'm including it, but I'm definitely sort of at a loss just at the moment for how to necessarily make an interpretation out of it. A less scrupulous editor, Stephanie, would not have included the first part of that quote, so I give you credit to putting in the full (laughs) quote, warts and all. Yeah, it's so anyway, what let us know what you guys think about that Sophie Treadwell quote. But um to kind of wrap things up, overall, she was definitely different. Like I said, I, I did some work on a production of this uh a while ago and sort of just like thought of her as like this feminist icon, this like really cool playwright who like stuck it to the man and you know, blah blah blah. So she's definitely a lot more dynamic than I sort of anticipated. And uh I definitely had to think through a lot more of her legacy than I sort of wanted to, maybe. But uh, I definitely learned a lot from from looking at Sophie Treadwell. I didn't have that background, Stephanie. So I think maybe you have experienced her life differently than our listeners who maybe weren't as quite familiar uh, with her as you are. Uh, but uh, I'm glad to see that it changed your perception, too, that it wasn't a, a recitation, but rather an act of discovery this week. And I know that I, for one, am better for having known Miss Treadwell. So, <laughs> Yeah, so I don't know. I was thinking about, you know, shows that I could do with my students in the future. Machinal definitely would wind up on the table. I think that's a couple years out because of the other plans that I have. Machinal is a really intense piece. Um, it's really cool, but definitely after uh, recently doing The Crucible and some of the other ones that I have planned, uh, I'm going to need to stick that in at a, at, a, at a better time. So who knows? Maybe that'll be the 100th year anniversary. And uh, if I'm still doing and directing shows and teaching in 2028, uh, that'll be on the docket for 100 years of Sophie Treadwell. If you do it in 2028, I'll be right there in the audience, Stephanie. I can't wait. <laughs> awesome. Uh, well, listeners, thank you so much. Again, save the date for April 2nd. We sincerely hope that you'll be able to join us uh, to celebrate five years of Get Lit. Um, and of course, feel free to reach out to us if you've got thoughts about this episode, other authors we should cover, um, or just want to say hi. But we really appreciate it and, and look forward to many more episodes to come. So until we see and hear from you next time, thank you so much for your support of this podcast. And thank you, as always, for keeping it lit. There's one thing I know that's true If you want to be